You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. So we are in the season of Advent, and I'm really excited actually today to talk about um, this. And as you know, Advent is a season of preparation. That's really what it is in the Christian year. We, we talk about sort of the, the story of Israel coming to its climactic moment in the birth, life, teachings, death, resurrection, ascension of their Messiah, Jesus, right? And so Advent is the season designed to help us feel angst. It's a season designed to help us feel things that are not comfortable sometimes. There's, there's a sense that when we're in Advent, we're actually in a season of why isn't this better yet? And if you've ever been human, you've asked that question. Why isn't this better yet? So Advent's really cool because it forces us to ask that question. Lent does something similar. We'll be in Lent later in the, the springtime, which leads us to um, you know, Good Friday and Easter. And, and Lent says, not only have things not gotten better yet, but it feels like I'm in the desert. I feel like I'm dry. So both have their purpose of inviting us to confront some of the harder spaces within and in our world. But Advent has this sort of like, okay, is it here yet? Come on, why isn't it here yet? Why isn't it here yet? And today's theme is faith, which I think really does justice to what Advent's about. Now, if you grew up in church, faith has always meant something about you. Faith has always been this word that means something to the effect of, I prayed to accept Jesus as my Savior, which I I affirm I did that. I think it's great, so I'm not dissing that, but I want you to hear the way it just carries over, okay? So, So faith ends up being, I prayed a particular prayer to accept Christ and therefore I believe some information about Christ. Does that make sense? So so faith in a lot of Christianity has become this word that's really about what I believe towards God, about God, with God. And so we have these things in churches, sometimes we call them faith statements, right? We might as well just take out the word faith and just say belief statement, right? It's the same thing. But but is in in the Bible, that's not really what this word does most of the time. There's actually two words that are the same word, one's a noun, one's a Greek, that we sometimes translate faith in the New Testament. It's pistis is the word as a noun. Not that you're gonna memorize that, but whatever, right? So so there's a noun version. And then here the similarity. So that's pistis, and then pistuo is the verb, right? Both of these basically mean the same thing based on their function as a noun or a verb. And here's what it usually means in the Bible. It can mean trust. So not cognitive ideas about God, although those are important, but it has to do with relationality, right? Trust. Uh, This family of words can also mean faithfulness. So about like fidelity, like your connection to another party. So you can have pistis, you can have faith in a business partner. 
You're going to trust that your business partner is faithful to the agreements you've set apart in your contract or, contract or whatever it might be, right? So like, like this idea of faith has sometimes a lot of action built into the word. And then of course, there's the best version of this word that I just love, um, allegiance. Faith in the first century often had the connotation of allegiance. There's actually um, a guy named Matthew Bates who's written two books based on this idea that basically faith is allegiance to Jesus. So, so if you were to frame it that way, then faith isn't about necessarily just beliefs about Jesus, but it's about where your loyalty lies with Jesus and where your trust lies in the relationship and the ways in which mutually you can be faithful to one another. So, so faith is a really big word. So if you were to frame it, you might even think to yourself about the story of Israel a little bit. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to really try and understand the story of Israel. But let me just kind of cap this introduction by saying this. That for the early Jewish people in the first century, they had faith. At least certain pockets of them had faith that God was about to do something in human history that was going to change everything. Now, it would get packaged in a way they were like, oh, which is why, the, you know, Jesus divides movements and all this stuff. But for the early Jewish people, faith wasn't about just simply, we believe that God's going to do something. It was, we trust that God is good enough to do something. You see the difference? It's not God is omniscient, omnipotent, whatever, whatever fancy words we want to attach to what we believe about God. It's God's about to act. And that was faith. And so as we step in, what I want to kind of consider is um, some, some conversation. Because one of the things that I think is really important in today's message and text, the text we're going to be looking at is, is really just asking those questions. Like, what does it feel like to be first century Jewish people waiting for the Messiah? Why does it feel like it feels? And does it have any resonance 2,000 years later? And so, so I was thinking about my own life, and I was thinking, okay, so yeah, there are many times when I've had to wait for something I really wanted. Um, have you ever had to wait to buy something you really thought was going to change your life? It probably wasn't a big deal, but in the moment, it felt like it was going to change your life. So I'm that kind of person. Like, if I don't have something that I want to have, I'm thinking through every way I can get that thing I want. And when I get that thing I want, I'm going to be happy. And then when it comes, I'm like, oh, that was really neat. I'm glad it's here. And then I don't do anything with it for a very long time. And then I go back and I say, wow, I really thought this was going to change everything. But that feeling of wanting hasn't gone away. What the heck? This is a, this is a ripoff, you know. And so, so like, and it gets even worse, right, when I have to order and prime shipping isn't available, you know? And so, so then I'm just like, what the burp? You know, like, like how am I going to wait for like eight days for this snail mail of a desire package to come in the mail? And it's just awful, right? So you all, you, you, none of you are as weird as me, but some of you have stories where you've waited for something. Maybe it was something actually important, okay? So, so maybe it was something that actually mattered, not just a fancy toy, you know, new recording device for your podcast or whatever the heck it would have been for me, right? 
Like maybe there's something that was really significant that you were waiting for, except here's the deal. You didn't know the timeline. That's ancient Israel. They didn't have a code to tell them it's going to happen in this way at this time. All they knew was that there were these prophets sometime around the exile when everything blew up who said, hey, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. God's going to come to, they would use language like, God's going to come to Zion and wipe your tears. It's going to be like lions and lambs laying down together. It's going to be, you know, and this beautiful poetic picture. And, and they've been waiting hundreds of years trusting that this was real. And then Jesus shows up and it kind of blows up a lot of expectations. I want to talk today about faithful waiting. Faithful waiting. And faithful waiting is interesting. We're going to actually be looking at an obscure passage in the Bible. To me, it's obscure, at least on the surface as I read it. We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read the genealogy today. That's going to be super fun. Um, and, And the genealogies are the things we skip. And what I want to do is actually say, I get it, I skip it too, but let's not skip it today. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, as I was thinking about the genealogies in the Bible, of course, like, there's some really boring, long, you know, especially in the Hebrew scriptures. We just have these really long lists of names we don't know how to pronounce, and so that doesn't inspire us. We skip it, you know, and, and Yet, for the, for the writers of the New Testament, that's how they start the entire thing. Not that they thought, you know, not that Matthew was sitting around thinking, well, I'm going to start the New Testament today, and so, you know, it's not like that. But it happens to be arranged in a way that our New Testament starts that way. It's very fascinating. And I, ha, have any of you ever done Ancestry.com or 23andMe? Just do this. Um, yeah, how many of you have done the Ancestry.com one? Okay. And... So I tried it on a free trial, and it just seemed too hard. Is it a lot of work? A lot of work, yeah? Did you find things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there, I I don't know if you happen to have any weird nugget you want to share. You can, anyone? You don't have to. Like you're related to someone like Jesus' mom. Huh? Charlemagne. Whoa, that's pretty far back. Yeah, okay. Are you? Okay. (laughs) Did you find something intriguing to you? Yeah. Wow. So I was able to learn more information about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And ended up, yeah, when I was at the airport in Atlanta, I actually found one of the ancestors up on the wall. Oh. And so that was pretty cool. Wow. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Um, yeah. Okay. So Charlemagne and ancestors on walls. That's <laughs> more than I know. Um, and how about 23andMe? A few of you said 23andMe also. Um, did any of you find out that um, you had, what, what is it, um, how, not homo sapiens, but the other one? How many of you had like Neanderthal DNA? Yeah, a little bit? Yeah, 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 yeah. but like there's like a percentage threshold that they say, you have lots of Neanderthal for <laughs> your genetics, right? So, so again, it, it, it's fascinating to me that we like going backwards, and we also like to predict where we're going forwards, right? So there's kind of this tension in, in our human DNA, right? Like we want to be heading somewhere, but we also, there, there's something to finding out where we came from. And part of that, I think, really is a lot like Israel. Israel wanted to know, like, where's our story headed based on where it's been? I mean, that is constantly a theme in the Bible. 
And it's interesting to me that, that a lot of us have this same desire, and I think a lot of it has to do with our own sense of want, our own sense that the world can be better, our lives can be a hair better. And if we can figure out where we came from and renegotiate where we're going, maybe our lives on the other side will be a little bit better, a little bit more informed, a little bit more deeply rooted. You know, we also, I think, societally want this, right? I mean, Dr. King's famous quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We want our lives to bend towards that justice. We want our experience as a person in a larger society to bend towards justice as well. At least, I hope we do. We want to believe that things are going somewhere based on where they've been. And so, let's step into this and kind of have that angst in mind, have that desire in mind, that big picture of life in mind. And let's read this very boring genealogy that has something to say to us this morning. It's going to be Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. And I'm going to do my best to say words, I don't know, as well as I can, because they're all hard. Okay. It says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So notice really quick that this genealogy starts with where it's going. This isn't normal. So already the writer is trying to get us on board with something. So this is, in ancient genealogy, a really big deal. This is who we're talking about. Let's go backwards and tell you about him, okay? So an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by the way, he checks both boxes. He is thoroughly Abrahamic in his identity, and he is from the line of David. We'll talk more about that. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, Hilton, and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, <laughs> Salmon, the fishies. So, so in Jesus, here's the teaching today. In Jesus' DNA, this is a conspiracy no one knows about. In Jesus' DNA are salmon who spawned. And there was a miraculous conception of a human from salmon before the other miraculous. Okay, not true. So, so salmon, salmon, all of those things, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. <clears throat> and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. 
and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Pause. Do you hear how they mark time? They mark time already three ways. Abraham's time, David's time, the exile's time. Okay, just hold that. And after the deportation to Babylon, which was in 586 BCE, right? Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. It is highly likely impossible that there are other names that just aren't in the list. But the writer is trying to do something very clear. By putting them in blocks of 14, the writer's actually been putting them in blocks of sevens, you'll notice, right? Very intentional. But I want to just make a, a really clear point that I've already made, but I want to make it just punctually, and this, this is it. The genealogy for Israel was everything. Their trust in God was tied up in a savior from David's line. This isn't new news. It's in the Charlie Brown skit, right? We need a savior from the line of David. Like, like you, you probably, if you grew up in the church, know this information. If you don't, this is the critical piece for a certain few sects of the Jews in the first century that made a Messiah possible. They had to have David's blood in them. That was it. So Matthew, in starting this story, right, is, is kind of doing something really crazy. Because during the first century, Herod the Great, at this time, at least in Jesus' life, right, early life, Herod the Great's the king. Herod the Great does not have any Davidic blood. In fact, he's not purely Jewish. Herod the Great was at the right place at the right time, decent at military stuff. And so Caesar Augustus says, hey, why don't you do me a favor and represent me in this territory that you have some ties to? And so you can imagine why a lot of people weren't big fans of Herod because he had been appointed by their oppressor. In the first century, this is a huge deal. And so if you start walking around, for instance, and you start making claims, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm an ancestor, or Abraham is my ancestor. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Well, pretty much everyone except Herod can make that claim, right? But then you start really getting at it, and you say, you know, there's a few of us that can trace our line through David. Oh, interesting, right? 
And then, of course, there's even probably fewer that could say, not, not only from David, but through several kings all the way into the exile. But here's the deal. As soon as you start sort of talking fancy about David's line, you better watch it in this culture. Because as soon as you start talking about your Davidic identity, you are making a political statement if you're doing that in any kind of public sense. And so for, for the early Jewish people, they had a non-Davidic king who was really just a viceroy for an emperor. And the writer of the Gospel of Matthew says, hey, by the way, he's the real thing. You heard about Herod the Great and all his predecessors? Not the real thing. The real thing looks like this. And I can show you. You know, it's fascinating. Um, a, a scholar named Craig Keener says this about the way this is all set up. And there's a point to all of this. He says this. It's on the screen. By evoking great heroes of the past like David and Josiah, Matthew reminds his audience of the ultimate hero of Israel's history to whom all those stories pointed. Matthew makes this point clear in the opening words of his genealogy, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, literally the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew gets this phrase from passages in Genesis, but his use of the phrase contrasts starkly with the use in Genesis. Genealogies like those in Genesis typically list a person's descendants after this phrase rather than his ancestors. Matthew's point here is profound. So much is Jesus the focal point of history that his ancestors depend on him for their meaning. In other words, God's sovereignty directed the history of Israel and preserved David's line because of his plan to send Jesus. Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the focal point and the meaning maker of all of that story. It is so not arbitrary that he put this here, right before the birth story. And we might even notice this, right, that the genealogy of Jesus has some surprises. God demonstrates trustworthiness in unconventional ways. And that, to me, is one of the beautiful things about this. You heard me do a little hiccup at one point, right? David. Bathsheba's in there, right? Uriah's wife. You, you know that story. But then there's also multiple, not just, not just women, which we're always excited when women make genealogies. That's awesome, especially in the ancient world. But the writer takes great pains to mention non-Jewish women. Quite a few of them. Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, many of whom are Jewish. But you'll see there's Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? Who remembers the story of Rahab? Someone give it to me. And in short, what does she do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she is, um, a lot of names sound the same. So she is, um, are you talking about the same story? I, my hearing's bad today. Oh, it doesn't matter. So she is the person who, in the conquest narrative, which that's a hard story. We've talked about those things before. 
who um, says, hey, I will help you spies and I will, I'll be faithful to your God, right? So, so there's, this, there's this inclusion, this like sort of taking of folks that wouldn't really fit the storyline and make it a pure story that God says, I'm going to pivot and I'm going I'm to show that I'm trustworthy through the ways that I'm going to creatively pivot here to get to Jesus. And it reminds me of my own life, to be honest with you. Like, what kinds of pains has God taken to pivot in my story when maybe I have been the less trustworthy party in our connection? Or maybe when circumstances have been really bad. And the ways that I've, in my own life, just noticed God's unconventional, beautiful love in the mess. Maybe in stories of anticipation, you you could even connect yourself to your own relationship to God or your own connection to God's family, this kind of a family, a church family, your experience of God. And I know, I know some people's stories. Some people shouldn't be going to church anymore based on some of the pain you've experienced. And yet, something draws you back to Jesus. Something unconventional has interrupted the storyline that could have led to you saying, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of done with this thing. Be it church, be it Christianity, be it whatever it might be. And unconventionally, God has stepped into your storyline and said, hey, can you still trust me? Can you still trust me? Not can you still have correct beliefs about me, can you still trust me? I want to close this portion of our time together and then we'll have a couple of songs and communion and move into our lunch meeting for those who um, are able to stay. Um, we're going to move from the Gospel of Matthew to the Gospel of Luke really quickly. And I want to talk about something that's shortly after the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. And this is uh, the story of a guy named Simeon. So this is shortly after Jesus is born. It's in fact, going to be on the day he goes into the temple to be circumcised. It's the eighth day of life. And I'm going to put it on the screen. This is verse 25 of Luke 2. And it says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward, or another translation would put it, eagerly anticipated, um, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. And and the reason I wanted to introduce you briefly to Simeon is what I want you to see is that in Simeon, you actually have a person for whom this genealogy will matter greatly. You actually have a a person who's going to embody the experience of that angst in the way the story is being told here. And I underline that phrase, looking forward. It's it's actually really a fascinating thing. Quick, Quick little nerd moment, very quick. Um, looked forward really is this Greek word that's kind of like a couple of words put together, pros and dekomai. You shove those together and you get pros, which is this like forwardness. And, and dekomai is this word that can simply mean to receive or welcome. But it, it can also, when you add a, a forwardness to it, it's kind of like, it, it, it's like I want to receive what's yet to be here. Does that make sense? And, and you could, another way to translate this is really just waiting forwardly. Like he was waiting forwardly for something big to happen. And I want to keep going. Verse 26 says this. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. 
Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. What I'm hoping to do as we close is invite us to see Simeon as someone that we can relate to during this season. Simeon had waited his entire life, believing, trusting that the thing he was waiting for with God could actually be possible. Imagine the intensity of his trust. Now, there are things in our lives that we're probably waiting on that may never actually happen. Not in this life. And we have to hold those and own those. But I don't think it was about this thing must happen as much as it was, I want to be the kind of person who trusts that God is faithful. And so as we continue during this season of Advent, I ask this last question, just to hold with one another. How are you waiting on God during this season? What are you holding? For me, honestly, it's been health and those struggles I've had, just like God. Like, I, I want to step into Advent and Christmas feeling good, you know. Maybe family stuff. Maybe there's a breakthrough that you need to have in your family dynamic. And you're, you're waiting on God because it's going to take a flippin' miracle for that to even be possible. Career opportunities. Maybe creative energy that you just want to invest. You want to do something and it's like every time you try and step into it, roadblock, roadblock, roadblock. Busyness. Perhaps you just really want more God right now. Maybe you just really need more Jesus, more connection. Advent invites us to feel uncomfortable about our longings and to step in to those longings, trusting that God is faithful no matter how those come to pass. So we're going to pause and pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Um, and we're, we're going to close out with a few songs and communion. And as we do so, I invite you to just pause your heart and mind and just sit with that question. What, what is it that you're waiting on with God right now for? Not believing that it's wrapped up in the outcomes, but believing that God is trustworthy no matter the outcomes. That God is good, that God cares, that God is for you.